0: Time we'll go ahead and dismiss uh, the kids to kids' church this morning. I'm so grateful that we do have uh, Chris. Why don't you turn me down just a little bit? I feel, I feel like I'm a little, a little hot. My microphone, that is. My wife, uh, my wife continues to remind me that I'm not as good looking as I think I am. Uh, 2 Samuel is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, You know, I'm so grateful uh, that God has blessed us at Redeemer with uh, such talented musicians that on a Friday, uh, our worship leader can uh, call an audible and he can ask uh, Hunter and Hannah uh, and all the other musicians to uh, to take over, and I'm so grateful that we have been blessed by God with such talented musicians uh, that they can step in. And so, uh, be sure and remind Joel whenever he gets back uh, that job security is not a thing with him uh, that uh, that he can be replaced just like that. And so, uh, no, continue uh, to thank him uh, for assembling such a praise team uh, that he has, and so we're we're uh, very grateful. If you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to the book of 2 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, Last week, we looked at David's prayer following the covenant that God had given him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7. We see God giving David uh, a promise. God said, I am going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And we looked at the reality that that. The covenant, the Davidic covenant was much more about a covenant God than it was the actual covenant that God gave to David. That, that God was speaking to David and saying, this is more about who I am than the promise that I'm actually going to give you. That doesn't negate the promise that he gave to David, but as God promised David to be a God that will establish his kingdom, God's kingdom forever that he decided to do that through the lineage of David and through the Davidic dynasty and so we're going to see as David looked at 2nd Samuel chapter 7 in the end David responded with awe and wonder Uh, David was continually amazed by the, the great grace that God had poured out upon him. Well, today, this morning, we're going to look at how uh, we will see that Davidic covenant come to fruition, how God will fulfill the kingdom that he promised to David. So 2 Samuel chapter 8, and I want to apologize now uh, and have a disclaimer. Uh, I tried my best to uh, listen to the pronunciations of all of these Uh, Hebrew names and all of these uh, ancient Near East uh, words. So I'm just going to tell you now that I'm going to butcher them. Uh, And so as I butcher them, I'm going to ask that you would have the same grace uh, toward me that God has towards us. 2 Samuel chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Now after this, it came about that David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took control of the chief city. From the hand of the Philistines, and he defeated Moab, and measured with them the line, making them lie down on the ground, and measured two lines, and put to death one full line to keep alive, and the Moabites came became David's servant to bring tribute. Then David defeated Hadad Azar, the son of Rehob, the king of Zobah, and he went to restore rule at the river, and David captured from him 1700 horsemen and 20,000 foot soldiers. And David hamstrung the chariot horses, but he reserved enough of them for a hundred chariots. And when the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadazar, the king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 Arameans. And David put a garrison among the Aramean of Damascus, and the Arameans became servants to David, bringing tribute. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. And David took the shields of gold, which were carried by the servants of hadad Azar, and brought them to Jerusalem. And from Bethah to Berothai, the cities of hadad Azar, King David took a very large amount of bronze. And then when Toai, the king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated all the armies of hadad Azar, Toai sent Jerome, his son, to King David to greet him to bless him, because he had fought against Hadadazar and defeated him. For Azar had been at war with Toai, and Jerome brought with him the articles of silver and gold and bronze. And King David also dedicated these to the Lord with the silver and the gold that he had dedicated from all the nations with which he had subdued, from Aram and Moab, to the sons of Ammon and the Philistines and to Amalek. And from the spoil of Hadad Azar, the son of Rehob, and the king of Zobah. So David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the valley of the salt. And he put garrisons in Edom, and all of Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became servants to David. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. So David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. And Joab, the son of zuraiah was over the army of, of Jehoshaphat. And the son of Ahilud was the recorder. And Zodak, the son of ah- Ahitub. And Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were the priests. And, and Sariah was the secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehadoi, was over the Kerithites and the Pelathites, And David's sons were chief ministers. Let's pray. God, as we read this passage, may we be able to see your providence, your care, your f- fulfillment of your promises. May we see your faithfulness. May we see your faithfulness not only to David, but to us. Or may we be able to extract the biblical principles from these passages and apply them to our lives. We thank you for your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that whenever you leave today, that you will submit to the reign and the rule of God's kingdom in your life. As we look at this text, and as we look at any text, we must understand that, that there is a, uh, there's a context in which the scripture was written. And we understand that when we look at this narrative, that this is God's uh, recording, this is the recording of what God's kingdom had done in the ancient world under the Davidic reign. And so that's what we're seeing. God has promised David that he will, that he will fulfill his Covenant through him. And so I want us to go back and I want us to remind ourselves what it is that God is doing here in chapter eight by looking at what God promised in chapter seven. In chapter seven, verses nine through 11, God had made a promise to David because of who he is, who God is, and God is bringing that to fruition. So second Samuel chapter seven, I want us to look at verses nine through 11 real quickly. And I have been with you. God makes this promise. He says, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you, and I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. And I will also appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded the judges to be over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So God has promised to David that he will fulfill his promises, that I will do what I said I was going to do. I told you that, uh, I told you through the book of 1 Samuel, I was going to establish you as a king. I was going to give you dominion over the kingdom of Israel. And this I am going to make happen. In verse chapter eight is what we see taking place. God fulfills his promise. And I'm so grateful that God is not like us. I'm so grateful that God does what He says He's going to do. I'm so grateful that, that, that God fulfills His promises because we, as humans, don't. And our kids are quick to remind us. I made this analogy a couple of weeks ago and I'm going to make it again because it is applicable. How many times have you told your children that you're going to uh take them to get ice cream or you're going to to, to give them a surprise if they're good or you're going to do this or you're going to do that? And then the 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 events of the day transpire and, and you're like, okay, it's time for bed, and they said, but 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 you said you were gonna get ice cream. But but you said we were gonna get a surprise. They're quick to remember whenever we don't fulfill our promises, right? And our spouses are often quick to remind us of whenever we said, but remember, you said you were going to cut the grass today. Remember, you said you were going to to, to, to redo. Uh, we have, um, my wife and I have been putting off uh, hanging and, and redecorating. Uh, and I, by, by I say redecorating, just taking the stuff and moving it in Nicholas's room. And it's, it's been on the back of my mind uh, that, you know, about a month ago, I told my wife that we would go in there and we would hang the pictures where she wants them to hang and we would move this and move that and move the bed and move the dresser. And, you know, about, about once every other week or so, she says, you know, you, you, you still haven't gone in there in Nicholas's room. And, and, and I'm like, I know, I know. I said I was going to do it and I will do it eventually, Right. I'm so grateful that God is not like us. I'm so thankful that God is a God who fulfills His promises. And that's what we see in 2 Samuel chapter 8, is that God is fulfilling His promises. Now, I want to point out, it's easy for us to read chapter 8 and see, oh, well, this is just a bunch of skirmishes that took place in the Middle East, that took place in an ancient world, and, and that this isn't really... This isn't really substantial. I want us to avoid that temptation. This was not Middle Eastern skirmishes. This was not just a bunch of of insignificant battles that took place that that really don't mean anything. These were the enemies of God. It's interesting that as we read chapter 8, the very first, the very first The very first kingdom that that David encounters was the Philistines. The Philistines are synonymous with sin. They are synonymous with darkness. They are synonymous with evil. They are synonymous with all of that in the Old Testament, which is associated with an enemy of God. Interestingly enough, the second enemy that is mentioned here in 2 Samuel chapter 8 is Moab. Moab is... Additionally, is synonymous with an enemy of God. That's why it was so, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to take a tangent real quick, that's why it was so interesting and so providential and so gracious that Ruth, the Moabitess, was, was redeemed by Boaz. What was so epiphanic about that was the Moabites, the people of Moab, were by their very nature enemies of God and God brought Ruth in through through Boaz and redeemed her and claimed her as his own. And so I want to point out that here in second Samuel chapter 8 that the first two kingdoms, the first two people that David encounters were the Philistines, And the Moabites, these are people that are synonymous with evil and synonymous with wickedness and synonymous with idolatry and synonymous with with the enemies of God. And so this this wasn't merely just some uh, some Middle Eastern skirmishes that were taking place, but rather these were the enemies of God. And what's interesting is that in this passage, there's something that's lost in the translation. Because... The Hebrew author uses the same word seven times in 11 verses. And the word is nakah. And it means to, to strike down or to smite. And when we read it, we see, oh, the enemies of God defeated. The enemies of God were, stri- were, were smitten. The enemies of God were struck down. And, and it's just lost. But the Hebrew would have said, and God nakah, nakah, nakah. It would have been that, that, that repetition that God continually struck down, that God continually smote his enemies. And there is a, there is a reality that the Hebrew would have taught its audience and would have taught its hearer that, that we're, that we often miss in the English translation. And that is this, that the enemies of God need to be destroyed. So oftentimes in our lives, We placate the idolatry and the enemies of God in our own lives. Rather than allowing the Spirit of God to smite them and destroy them. Now, I want us to understand, in the ancient world, the enemies of God were those who worshipped Dagon. Those who worshipped Ashtaroth and Baal those who worshiped these false gods. And it's easy for us to look at the Old Testament and distance ourselves from the idolatrous world that was an Old Testament world. We don't have graven images that we set up on altars in our homes. We don't we don't set apart these these altars in our homes, but we do in our hearts. I want us to understand that there's a biblical principle that we can extract from this narrative here. And it's that that in order for God to take His rightful place as king, that He must destroy His enemies. That he must destroy those false gods and those false kingdoms. That he must destroy the false god of money and security. We have this illusion that if we make enough money, that if we put enough money in our 401k, that if we, if we put enough money in our savings account, that if we, if we have enough security financial security that, that, that we will somehow be free, we'll somehow be able to, to, to live in freedom and, and we, we will not be subject to all of the worries and all of the difficulties of this world. You know what that is? That's a lie. Because when we place our faith and our trust in anything other than God to provide us security, to provide us comfort, to provide us, us a protection, that that is idolatry. And if we are placing our faith and our trust in our 401k, if we're placing our faith and our trust in our savings account and our life insurance and in our car insurance and in our house insurance and saying that, that, you know, I am I am doing everything I can to protect myself from from anything that may happen. And my faith and my security and my comfort is found in what this world and what I can provide that's idolatry we're doing the exact same thing that the philistines did when they worshiped dagon we're worshiping a god that is a god other than the god of israel well that's okay preacher i don't make any money i don't have anything in my 401k so i'm not worried about that well that may be you and you may be like many of us who have worshiped family we've placed our family as the most important thing in our lives and you say you know what i may not have a lot of money i may not have financial security but i am surrounded by loved ones who care for me and and i will do anything and everything to protect and preserve my family My wife is Italian. My mother is Italian. Everyone on that side of the family is Italian. Uh, it's not personal. It's business. And if you cross those Italians, uh, they will, uh, they will uh, be not very nice. <laughs> and that is a battle that that all of us face to elevate family above God. That's why Jesus made the statement, he who does not love, he who does not hate his family, in comparison to his relationship, his love for me is not worthy of me. Jesus was in no way advocating that we hate our family hate our mother and our father and our brother and sister but what Jesus was saying is that your love for me should not that your love for your family should decrease but that that your love and your affection for me for God for the son of God that it should be that much more that we should love God so much more than in comparison than in comparison that our love for God should be preeminent than in comparison the affection that we feel for our family is insignificant You know, there are some of us who have done a good job of not elevating money, not elevating security, not elevating family. But many of us have elevated religion. We've elevated our faith to the point of a God. To the point of idolatry. That every time the doors of the church are open, we're here. And we equate equate piety. We equate faithfulness to the church. We equate our our faithfulness to give, our faithfulness to serve that I have done what I need to do and what are we doing? We are placing our works above that which God has done. We are elevating religion and faith as a God. There are many of us who simply love self. I was listening to Terrell Owens yesterday give his acceptance speech to the Hall of Fame and and for what it's worth, uh, I don't think a whole lot of Terrell Owens. And after hearing his acceptance speech, I think even less. He was giving his acceptance speech, and he quotes from Deuteronomy, completely pulling it out of context. And uh, you know that that saying that God will will allow him, God, that God has given him the land, and I think like, <laughs> okay. And then somebody yells out from the crowd, and they say. I love you, T.O. And he says, I love you too, but I love me more. And what is, what's, you know, it's, it's, we're, as I'm sitting here, as I'm thinking about my message, and I'm thinking about idolatry, and how we have become an idolatrous people. Yes, we're not the Philistines. Yes, we're not the Moabites, but we might as well be. I hear Terrell Owens, who is a, Manifestation, I believe, of a generation who says, I am the most important person, the most important thing in the entire world. Yes, I love you, but I love me more. That is more, and, and, and I don't want us to hear this, and I don't want you to hear this as an indictment on Terrell Owens, because I think that that is an indictment upon the human condition, that if we are honest with ourselves, Our actions would indicate that we agree with Terrell Owens. That I love me more. I love you. I care about you. You're important to me. But the most important thing to me is me. So what is God saying in this text in 2 Samuel chapter 8? He says that those enemies of God, those idolatrous nations, must be Destroyed. In order for the kingdom of God to take its rightful place at the head, that the enemies of God must be destroyed, that they cannot be placated. We cannot take Dagon and bring him alongside the God of Israel and say, now y'all play nice together. We cannot take Bel and we cannot take Asteroth and bring him alongside the God of Israel and says Well, y'all coexist, y'all, y'all learn to learn to tolerate one another. The enemies of God must be destroyed, and that is where we as Christians have learned learned to to placate our own idolatry. We've learned to, to, and we have tried to take our idolatry, our love of self, our love of security, our love of family, our love of whatever it may be, and we have said, I want my idol to coexist with my God. That's idolatry. The scripture tells us that in order for God, in order for the kingdom of God to be fulfilled, in order for God to take His rightful place, those false gods, those enemies of gods, must be destroyed. Nakah, They must be smitten. They must be struck down. But it's interesting. Not all the enemies were struck down. Not all the enemies were destroyed. Look at verse 9. Now, when Toai, the king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the armies of Hadadazar, Toai sent Joram, his son, to the king of David to greet him and bless him because he had fought against Hadadazar and defeated him. And Hadadazar had been at war with Toai, and Jerome brought with him articles of silver, gold, and bronze. Now, don't misunderstand. Toi is not some super spiritual king who had this revelation that David was the uh, was the rightful king and that the God of the uh, the God of the Israelites was ushering in this new kingdom and Toai had this revelation from the Holy Spirit and so he brought himself and submitted himself under uh, the, the reign of King David that's not what happened Toai had been battling against Had Azar and and he was at war with him, and so the enemy of my enemy is now my friend, right? That's what took place. Had Azar realized that that hey, David just came in here and wiped out my enemy. And so there is a good reality that, that if he wiped out my enemy, he's probably coming after me next. And so in order to, in order to preserve myself and my own family and my own wealth and, and everything that I have, I am going to submit myself and fall in line under this new king, under this new ruler, so that I can preserve myself. This was a very pragmatic response to what was going on in the region. But nonetheless the king saw the power and the providence and the protection that the God of Israel had provided for David and placed himself under full submission of the king and came to him, hat in hand, came to him with gold and silver and bronze and said, King David, I submit myself to you. I believe that this narrative provides two examples of how God will bring about His reign, both in the real world and in the world of our hearts. Many of us have experienced in our own lives times whenever God has by His discipline, by His strong, omnipotent hand, how He has broken us. How He has struck us down. How He has said, you won't obey? (laughs) I will bring about my discipline into your life to bring you into obedience. I will usher in my kingdom, my authority, my reign in your life, whether you like it or not. And then there have been some times in our lives Whenever God, by his grace and by his mercy, has revealed through the the Holy Spirit conviction that God has said, this area, this idol, this, this aspect of your life needs to be dethroned. And we have the opportunity to submit, to fall on our knees before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, You are God, and I am not. God, remove this from me. God, take control. Of this area of my life. And so this morning. I want us to understand. That the kingdom of God will reign. As David. Walked into Israel. As he ushered in his kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Told David. I am going to subdue all of the enemies before you. I am going to give you rest from all of your enemies, I am going to establish you as the king over all of the nation. And not only you, but your descendants and their descendants and their descendants. All the, And, and we, we see the foreshadowing of the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus, who will come and who will reign forever and ever and ever. And make no mistake about it, the kingdom of God will reign. The question becomes, will we be smitten by God? Will we be struck down by God? Or we will fall into submission. Turn with me if you will to Luke chapter 20. I believe that Luke chapter 20 is a a foreshadowing, a, a, a extension of this very promise and this very principle in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Luke very Luke chapter 20, verses 19. I'm sorry, verse 17 and 18. As Jesus' authority is questioned, He makes this statement. He looked at them and He said, What then is this that is written, The stone which the builders rejected, He became the chief cornerstone. And everyone who falls upon that stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, He'll be scattered or crushed like dust. Jesus is making the statement that I am that King. I am that cornerstone. I am the one who, whom through the covenant of David, I am the fulfillment of that Davidic prophecy. I am the king that will reign. And if you will come and you will be broken and you will submit yourself under the leadership and under the authority of Christ, or you will be struck down, you will be smitten, you will be destroyed by the king, by the kingdom. 2 Samuel chapter 8 gives us a picture of God's reign. God will destroy the false gods in your life. And I pray that you will submit to God's rule in your life. I want us to, to, to conclude very, very quickly the rest of 2 Samuel chapter 8, verses 7 through 12 and verses 8 through 15. I'm sorry, verses 12 through uh, eighteen. So Second Samuel chapter eight verses seven through twelve is a forecast of of all that will come to pass at the end of the age. And I want us to look very, very, very quickly at chapter seven. I'm sorry, verse seven. And David took the shields of gold which were carried by the servants of Hadad Azer and brought them to Jerusalem. And then if you look at verse eight, it said uh, that David took a very large amount of bronze. And if you look at uh, verse 10, it says that jo- Jerome brought with him the articles of silver and gold and bronze. And if you look at verse uh, 12, it says, and Aram and Moab and all the sons of Ammon and all the Philistines and Amalek and, the sp- and God took the, the spoils of Hadad Azer and the sons of Rahab and the king of Zobah. What this th- text is saying is that all of the stuff, all of the silver, all of the gold, all of the bronze, all of the the spoils of war were brought into the kingdom of God. And that is a forecast, that is a foreshadowing of that which is going to come at the end of the age. In fact, all of creation belongs to whom? It belongs to God. And in God's grace and in God's mercy and in God's sovereignty, He in due time is going to bring that unto Himself. Because it's His. By His compassion and loving kindness, He bestows upon us good, wealth, prosperity. Because He loves us. But it's all His. And He will in due time bring it unto Himself. And then we see verses 15-18. through The summation of this text. And this is where I want to end here this morning. In verse 15, the scripture says, David reigned over all of Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all of his people. Now, I want to point out that this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, tells us that David was a righteous king, that he administered justice and mercy for all of his people. Now, we know that David was not a perfect king. We know through 1 Samuel that David had to be protected from himself. We know that David had to be protected from his own recklessness and his own sin. We know that later on in 2 Samuel that David will fall and that he will commit murder and adultery. And and, and that this verse in chapter 15 is not a contradiction of the character of David, but it is a endorsement of the character of David. Not that David is free from sin, not that David is free from failure, but that David is a man who seeks by his own humanity and everything that he is as a human to do that which is right. Is he going to fail? Absolutely. Is he going to, to provide for Israel difficulty and hardships because of his failure? Absolutely. But he is a man who seeks to do that which is right. And so this is the question that I want to leave to you. I said that I pray for us, that my prayer this morning as we leave, that we would submit to God's rule in your life. The way that I hope that that happens is that you will resolve to exemplify the principles, the biblical principles that God has revealed to us in our daily life. You are not God's covenant king. I'm not God's covenant king. But you are God's ordained leader in your homes, over your children, that you are an example that God has set up in your workplace, in your schools, God has by His great grace and by His great mercy, He has saved you. He has called you out of darkness into light. He has filled you with His Holy Spirit and He sent you into the workplace to be a light in a dark world. He has set you as the mother or father of your children to raise them, to disciple them, to to equip them, to send them out into the world. He has gifted you with the ability to be Pun intended, the king of your castle, the queen of your castle, so that you can lead your kingdom to be a kingdom that honors the Lord. Micah says it like this in chapter 6, verse 8, You've heard, O man, what the Lord requires of you, to do justice, love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. You can exemplify these principles in your life, and by doing so, we can emulate verse 15, And said, David reigned over all of Israel. David administered justice and righteousness for all of his people. You won't reign over Israel. But dad, you can reign over your children. And I don't mean reign in an authoritative way. But you can lead them in godliness and righteousness and love them and care for them. And do what is right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Mom, you can do what is right by your husband, by your children. You can love mercy and you can walk humbly with your God. You can go to the workplace and do what is right. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. But the only way for that to happen is that you find yourself first at the foot of the cross. Destroying those false gods, and submitting yourself to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Let's pray. God, we thank You that in Your great grace You have given us Your Word that reveals to us that that we may not have dagons, Baal and Ashtaroth in our life, Lord, but we do have false gods And those false gods need to be struck down. They need to be destroyed. Maybe there's someone here this morning who for the very first time realizes that they have been trusting in themselves. They've been trusting in their own security. They've been trusting in in these false gods for salvation. They've been trusting in that which provides temporary satisfaction and fulfillment. And by your grace and by your mercy, you have given us Jesus who provides eternal salvation, eternal security. Lord, may we sacrifice and may we strike down those false gods and place our faith and trust in Jesus and in him alone. Maybe God is speaking to your heart this morning and calling you to resolve to be a king or a queen who, loves, who does justice, loves mercy, and walks humbly with their God. Maybe this morning God is calling you to be a part of what God's doing right here at Redeemer. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, may today... During this time of invitation, you have the freedom to do, to be obedient to the Holy Spirit. And we pray for your grace and your mercy and your Holy Spirit to move in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand and worship with us? Who has called me friend? Constantly.